Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show, where ordinary heroes tell extraordinary stories during unique and never-been-heard-before conversations with your host, Hillary Arno Burns. Hillary's unique listening and way of asking questions results in conversations that aren't usually talked about, so you can create the life that you really want but are afraid you can't really have. We are demonstrating the greatness in the human spirit and creating a world where we all reclaim our birthright of joy, happiness, purpose, and passion. Now, here's your host, Hilary Arno Burns. Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show. And we have a really, really cool and interesting and fantastic guest today. But before that, I just want to uh, shamelessly promote my book that was just published last week, Real Talk by Hillary Arno Burns on Amazon. If you haven't gotten it, there's still a special ebook price of 99 cents. And uh, this book will change your life because you will start saying stuff that you don't say in order to have the life you really want, but are afraid you can't have. So there it is, shamelessly promoting my own book. And if you haven't read my first one, it's got the rest of the story, which is called The Second Piece of French Toast, also available on Amazon. So anyway, it's my show. I can say whatever I want, right? <laughs> Anyway, all right, she's waiting in the wings. Dr. Rebecca, okay, I always say I'm not gonna cry and I cry. So Dr. Rebecca Ward, uh, we met in, in some transformational programs a few years ago. Um, every time I hear more about Dr. Rebecca, I'm just um, blown away by what she's accomplished, who she is, what she stands for. Um, uh, so she's a psychologist and she specializes in working with children with autism and other developmental disabilities. So welcome, Rebecca, Dr. Rebecca Ward. Thanks, Hillary. And congratulations <laughs> on your book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was a really fun week. So, but it doesn't end. We want to keep spreading the word. And this show is for people to talk about what they don't always talk about. And I know... Uh, you know, in our, in our bullpen, we were talking about uh, some of the stuff in your life. And so, you know, that's what the book's about. And that's what the show's about is getting people to start talking so that we can get free of the stuff that gets us stuck. So where do we want to start? Becca? You want to start when oh. you were seven or before that? <laughs> when you were three? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, the, I think, yeah, that maybe I'll just frame it in, in a way about, you know, I'm going to talk later about a book that I'm writing and about the work that I've done. And I've been a psychologist since 1995, but I've worked for much longer with people with developmental disabilities. And, and so I, I wanted to start off talking about just how I got to be where I am, like how I got interested in that and what about my early childhood led me to that. And so, um, so I guess the, the thing that stands out for me the most was that, you know, I grew up in a family with seven children and so it's a, a big household and there's a lot, a lot that was challenging in kind of the middle years, like the age seven to 10 years. 
And there was a lot of stress for my parents and it led to us as children witnessing violence between my father and my mother. So, so that was a really, obviously a, a big traumatic event in my life. That wasn't a one-time thing. It was over several years. And so when, when you say violence, does that mean he was like physically yeah, violent? Verbal, yeah, verbal and physical uh, violence. So, yeah. so you yeah, would verbal. see him hitting, harming yeah. your mother. Yeah. 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 And I would, I would say, you know, like there was, you know, multiple events and one particular event that was particularly traumatic that I would say that that formed a bit of how I am in the world in terms of, you know, having to kind of like my strategy for surviving life was to shut down in order to survive. So, and I think that's yeah. not uncommon in trauma when children experience. Right. So can you say what happened? Oh, that my father threatened my mother with a butcher knife and we're three of us witnessing that. So nothing terrible happened in the in the long sense of um, no one was killed. And it's really just the, the trauma of witnessing something like that and having each of the children have their own experiences of that. My older sister, who wasn't much older, I was like eight, she would have been 10. Um, took the knife from his hand and uh, you know and so she had her own way of dealing with it so you know like it was it was pretty wow dramatic. it was a pretty dramatic scene but in my memory is more like a frozen scene and um, in psychology we talk about that as what's the word <laughs> blocking on the word now this is my senior moment um when you Trauma just or when you just check out, you know, what's the, the okay. that, you know, and, and so that kind of experience over a long period of time led me to have a view of myself that I was shameful. Like there were shameful things going on in the family. I'm shameful. I can't really reach out and have friends. No one's going to want to be a friend with me. And so there was this break in belonging around that time of like, I don't belong. And so there were a couple of years of having no friends and then gradually having friends, but always in the background is this kind of doubt about belonging that persisted, I would say, right into adulthood. And it really impacted all relationships. And so I was married and that marriage didn't last. And then um, I became in my 20s, I was already studying psychology. And I think that what I had the opportunity to do in my early 20s was you know, I, I met my husband who's still, we're together still, been together like 37 years. Um, he's a psychologist. And part of the dynamics when someone sees themselves as shameful and not good enough is that they're often trying to prove themselves. And so, you know, so that's what I was doing in my life was like I had to become something to prove I was a worthwhile person, worthy. And mm. so I became a psychologist, you know, and I went on to be just like my husband. <laughs> so, so there's a sense of, you know, like partnership and it's, you know, it sounds really nice, actually, two psychologists working together. And, you know, we've done a lot of work, great work together, research together. But in the background, this very what I would call a very um, immature young conversation is this idea of I have to be good enough. I have to prove I'm good enough always and now if you so if you had married like a 
someone an architect, would you have become an architect? Maybe. Or were you already on Actually, the path? That would be of... very appealing. I would have liked to be an architect. <laughs> so you became that because your husband was one, and like in order well, to. Yeah, there's a there's or a whole no. other story from high school where I wanted to be an artist, but I hadn't oh. actually taken all the because it wasn't didn't look good. It didn't look smart. It looked smarter to go like more the academic route in the high school, and so I did that route. But a part of me really wanted to be the, the artist, <laughs> and so if I had met an architect, I'd be free then to have been an architect or something like that, <laughs> or like. What else? Who else could you have married? I don't know. No, I don't a, know. <laughs> a garbage collector. You'd be out on the truck with your green bin. Right? No, I think it was more the fact that I really admired my husband Maurice. I really admired him and admired what he was up to. And I was already on track. We had met through work, so I was already on track. Oh, you know, okay. With people with <laughs> developmental disabilities, I didn't suddenly switch. Yeah. Right, right, right. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. No, but <laughs> my mind was going over. Yeah. Okay. No, go. you've got my <laughs> mind going there too. It's funny. Yes. <laughs> so okay. So yeah, back so, to yes. Yeah. 20, so, when you were in your twenties, you were you started the psychology. That's right. Took you yeah. off track. Yeah. No, it's okay. So yeah, and it was only after meeting Maurice that I got this idea that I should become a psychologist. I in the meantime I was working, you know, doing more direct work with people with developmental disabilities and autism and. And so then, you know, then I. Also, and that was in college. That was already. Oh, like no, just that, was, a, that was in my early 20s. I was pretty well done. Okay. Uh, I was done. Okay. Now, how an, a question that's mm -hmm. you were already married once. How early did you get married? Like very, Not very young. At 19 when the same age that my mother was when she married my dad. So, wow. so it was fun to look at patterns and how we repeat things. Um, and how long did you stay married to that one? Six years. Yeah. Oh, okay. Pretty short. And he was, a, there's nothing wrong with him. He wasn't alcoholic or violent or anything. I hadn't repeated that pattern, but he was a really great guy. And I just had other ideas about my life and where I wanted to go. With mm. it. So, wow. Yeah. So good for you. That was kind of how I ended up kind of down this, this psychology track. And, you know, and it's, I, th I think it's something that it's important, I guess, to, to talk about these things, because each of us has a way of, you know, like how we got to be the person that we are today. It's often driven by those early experiences. And I think you've mm -hmm. looked at that in your show all along, you know, and, but it doesn't end just because, oh, now I'm a psychologist and all this hunky dory. It's like, it then goes on to other things there's the like the not being good enough story persists and so having to be an expert in autism became the next thing <laughs> so and it was great in the sense that I you know like I really love working with these kids it's really a wonderful focus um, I worked with a lot of parents and you know really doing a lot of parent training teaching parents how to help their children and working with schools and you know, like all of that is really a passion for me, just making mm -hmm. a difference in that realm. But behind that, this young conversation yeah. was like, I have to be an expert at something to to prove myself still. And and, uh, and were you still like, when did you when did you feel or notice the shame? Like, when were you aware of the shame? Oh, it re that really didn't um, get clear to me until I did some transformational work. You know, the oh, work okay. 
Okay, so that I was later. That. Yeah, that came. So you were still just being the best and having to shine and looking good and proving yourself. Shiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Always with this doubt and this, uh, what some people talk about is like a fraudulent kind of self. Like you know, oh, they're going to find out I'm not really great at all. And yes, you know, yeah, 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 no, yeah, that, yeah. Was that was definitely there in the background for me. But you know, but in the in and that. Why no, why autism? Like, how did you get to autism from psychology? How did you pick that? Well, when I was um, young, I had a lot of connections with people with developmental disabilities in particular. So I had my husband, my first husband's brother and sister both had developmental disabilities. So I knew them through my teens. Um, wow. I, I had a best friend who had a brother with a very severe uh, intellectual and physical disability and wow. I, yeah and I started working when I was probably 16 maybe grade 11 or 12 I can't remember with programs back then there weren't a lot of programs for kids you they they didn't go back to, they didn't go to school they stayed home with their mothers essentially those with severe disabilities and so the parents would start programs for their kids, often in church basements. And so I got involved in one of those programs and started wow. to get really interested and, you know, discovered, oh my God, you know, like this is, you know, these kids can't go to school was the number one uh, realization, but also that the kind of challenges is that, that these parents had was really significant, you know, like trying to yeah. raise them like that and having no support. And I kind of knew that through you know, my boyfriend's siblings and right. uh, who, boyfriend at the time and my uh my girlfriend's brother as well so so it's kind of a switch in that world yeah so that yeah. yeah and obviously even though you i mean obviously you like it you you enjoy that work yeah no so i do hard, but yeah. yeah yeah even though i'm must talking have been about drawn it. to it yeah yeah, yeah. It definitely was and um there was a program back then now it's called excuse me <clears throat> now it's called developmental service worker program mm -hmm. college level program back then because of the language that was used it was called mental retardation counseling and wow. that's what I went into was a that course and and it was a two-year college degree I didn't go to grade 13 which was something in order to get to university at that time you had to have grade 13 and I didn't want to go that route so I did this college program for two years and then after that I went on to university um, and where was that was that Canada college? yeah I lived in Windsor and Windsor Ontario and oh, okay which is across from Detroit and um right okay and the college was um like not right in my town I got to go live in a, a town nearby where there was a large institution and these institutions don't exist I don't think they exist in the U.S. either anymore but huge institutions that might have a thousand people living there with developmental disabilities so that was at seven I was 17 to 19 when I went through that program and um a thousand people yeah yeah like on it's like built like a hospital right so it's wards yeah so they're all in their different wards wow. depending on ability levels and different kinds of needs and and I got to the program at the time that I was in was was very behavioral, meaning that it was teaching us how to be behavior analysts, how to yes. look at the kind of challenges that people were having. So um, 
now it's people will know it as applied behavior analysis or ABA. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's a huge field and it was a not so new even then, but it's really grown as thousands and thousands of practitioners. Um, wow. In applied behavior analysis now. And most of that, those people are working with children with autism. So that was in part because of, um, in it was around 1987, there was a psychologist uh, in um, in California who did some research, Ivar Lovas. He did some research that demonstrated that you could take kids who were autistic and you could work with them over a two-year period. And by grade one, they were indistinguishable from their peers. And so it was a small group, though. It was only 19 kids. And were half of them became indistinguishable from their peers. And so there was from that, that was like a, a launching off. It was like an amazing discovery in a sense that this isn't doesn't have to be a lifelong condition if you give them the right kind of intervention. And the kind of intervention was this ABA therapy that was being used back then based on the work of Ibar, of um, um, B.F. Skinner. It developed from a behavior analytic point of view. So, so wow, isn't that amazing? Yeah, it was. Before it was that, they were they couldn't go to school, and after that, you couldn't tell them apart, right? Yeah, yeah, probably by the such 80s. a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, by the for 80s. these kids and the parents, right? Oh my god! Yeah, wow. Yeah. So, so kids were going to school, but these programs were being offered in clinics, and so when I decided to, you know, to go into um, becoming a psychologist and studying, I ended up going to the University of Toronto. And the person that I was working with worked at the uh, Institute, uh, Surrey Place Center in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And um, and I worked with him and he had set up a clinic. He was a student of this Ivar Lobos from California. Mm. And he had set up a similar replication, essentially, of that program. And so I worked in that program and did my thesis work with kids in the Toronto community who had um, a mixture of autism and developmental disabilities. So that was, that was that period. Yeah. Wow. No, that's, that's great period. To like, be whatever you call it, breaking work, um, something breaking work. What do you call it? I can't think. Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. See, you're not the only one. Groundbreaking, really? The yeah, fact yeah. that he, yeah, that's incredible. You were in the right place at the right time, right? To yeah, yeah. No, the, really like forefront of this, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of and you know really got me deep into the work, and it's probably in that time period that I decided I needed to be an expert, and so like you know like getting other kinds of training and really just digging into the research and doing my own research which was all about what was your yeah. yeah yeah my phd thesis was about language and and how kids develop language and how they understand language and it was specific to autism though it was like when you can't understand language how do you how do how do you process things like you know looking at visual information how important that is into our communication and kind of working up from there it was it was um it was a study with about 30 kids that I ran around Toronto, going to schools, uh, doing these little assessments with kids to try and help see how they were, how their language uh, comprehension was developing. So, wow. And how did you know? I mean, that's so, 
you know, how do you know what's going on inside? Or you well, had a way. More, yeah, no, it's more of what you can observe, right? You know, like the observable mm -hmm. things. It was providing them with a little test where they had to interact mm -hmm. with the materials that I was providing them. And then you would be able to see um, some of them would respond to certain kinds of tests and not others. And then you could say, okay, given given what we know about this child's language abilities, and this is how they do on this test, it was really you know, being able to say that this little test could be used as a way to say, okay, if the child performs at this level on this test, then we need to start here in terms of our language training, using lots of visuals and whatever. A child that, that performs this far on the test, then we can be able to um, teach them with some different strategies. So it was really intended to kind of, kind of get at other ways to intervene to help kids learn language, especially understanding of language, which was a great difficulty for a lot of kids we dealt with. They were, um, majority of kids were nonverbal or minimally verbal that I was working with. So uh, they might've had like short sentences at the most. Wow. So, That's you know, amazing. But, yeah, but then there are a lot of kids that, you know, they might not be able to speak, but they actually understand a lot. And so that you, through a test like that, uh, you're able to kind of see that, oh, they do understand a lot of what we're saying, even though they can't, wow. even though they can't speak themselves. So. So did they end up using that test? Did it get. Uh, like, the test has been used in, uh, in it has more research was done on the test and other people have used it. And it was, it, it's, yeah, I wouldn't say that it's used regularly, but it is something that has been used. Nice. Uh, nice. So, so that's, wow. that's, you know, like, did you prove yourself with that? Was that no, enough? No, it wasn't enough. Had you made it yet? <laughs> right? <laughs> that's the thing about that winning formula. You never quite ever get fulfillment. You never, right? get, you never get there. No, you never get there. And never so, enough. That's fine. Never enough. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I sold that many books, but next week nobody's going to buy. So where did it get me? Right? It's really crazy. It is, crazy, it is a crazy human thing that we do. Yeah. 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 All right. So you marry your husband. What else? What else we got? Um, I have a son. I have a stepson. I have grandchildren. Now. Oh. <laughs> that's oh. where my, as soon as you said that, that's where my mind went. All oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, all right. So you're going along, going along. And then somewhere in your forties, you took some transformational programs, right? Yeah, I did landmark, what's called the landmark forum, which I did in 19, uh, sorry, 2001. So 21 years ago. And, um, and then took a lot of other courses and assisted with courses over the years. And, and, but it wasn't really, you know, despite being a psychologist, I really didn't, hadn't done a lot of transformational work, like work on myself. Oh. I focused on, you know, the clients that I'm working with and, you know, really focused out there on what I was up to. But that whole looking inwards that, well, how did you get to be this person? I never really looked at that in that direction at myself much, which um, is amazing, but you can get away with that even as a psychologist. And so, uh, so I did this transformational course and really got to see how I got constructed and, uh, and saw these very young conversations of surviving trauma and the sense of wow. not belonging and all of that and how it really drove me and my passion about autism and about developmental disabilities in general. It's like, it's like they, 
pretty well all children who have some kind of disability, whether, and it doesn't even have to be autism or developmental disability, could be ADHD or learning disabilities, you know, they all have a sense of not being good enough and of not belonging, of being on the outside of something. And friendship development for those groups can be very difficult. And so I think that was the core of what drove me was this, you know, desire to have friends and to have to prove myself to be worthy of having friends that I didn't want children to have to do that, you know, like, mm. like to, to go through life, like having to, having to prove yourself instead of yeah. just appreciated for who you are. So, yeah, one of the things that I've seen in my interviewing and talking to people is that I haven't met one person who thought they belonged, mm-hmm. no matter what, whether they had trauma or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just think nobody thinks that they belong until they say it and then they realize, oh, everybody everybody feels that way. So, yeah. Yeah. so it is interesting, right? That we and and that you would gravitate towards towards that um, population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I'm yeah. just, I'm like yeah. lost and, in my and, thoughts here that. Because... Uh, no, I think it's like, and, and become interested in issues of friendship and belonging. And I think that's why rather than like a general, uh, like general work with children with developmental disabilities, autism in particular has this social communication piece that's mm. super challenging. And so, I think that motivated me to, you know, like, like looking at like, how can I help children have friends? Just like Mm. I did when I was young, but their issues are different. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So being able to follow that, that thread and be able to, to see that everybody deserves friends. So that was, that was a big conversation in the, I would say the 60s, 70s and 80s was the issue of inclusion, you know, like everybody belongs, everybody deserves to belong, everybody has the yeah. right to belong. And so, so I was part of that conversation as I was going through my education and my early career. That was a really big thing. And wow. so, yeah, so in the, in the, uh, I would say in the, the nineties, when I was just starting to, uh, starting the PhD, because there was a long period of just working, just, you know, working with people mm. and serving people, young children with autism, but, you know, other children, older children as well, and working with their families. And, and really, all, all through that time was, was that focus on having your children be, um, be able to fit in and be able to, you know, that they have a right to be educated, they have a right to have high quality education, all of that. It was a very strong period for human rights for people with disabilities during those those couple of decades. Yeah. Wow. And so um, we're almost at the, at the halftime break, but what did you see? I keep going back to that shame Mm -hmm. because I had an incident growing up and there was no, a little bit of, it was just like one time where I got really scared. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I had shame. I got fear. Like I learned, I got to be careful. I can never make that person mad again because it's dangerous. You know, that impacted my life in terms of not speaking up and not, yeah. you know, just, yeah, you know, got to keep everything a certain way or it's dangerous. So what, what impact did that have on you when you saw some of the error or not uh, on that uh, shame and that, you know, the yeah. violence and 
being shaped by that? I mean, what did it open up for you? That's what I'm wondering. I think I think I want I want to reference something you said. Okay. About, about having to walk, you can like walk on eggshells. So I was a person yeah. who was excellent at walking on eggshells without making any noise, and from having yes. lots of experience, right, doing that, and it's kind of like a like ha learning how to disappear. Or another metaphor I loved was being one of those commandos where you can stay under the wire. Yeah, that was like, me. <laughs> yeah. Ready to get through life like that, right? Stay under That's the what wire. I said, under the radar. Just I yeah. learned to be very quiet, yeah. not yeah. let anyone see me because my sister was the oldest. What number were you? I'm number four of seven. So I was the middle child. Oh, and right I in love, the middle. I love yeah. to say I was the fulcrum, but not really. <laughs> so you um, learned to be careful also wow yeah the yeah. being careful in life has been a theme i could go on about mm. that too but um yeah so i think shame actually probably is very highly connected to being careful in life and being cautious and a reserved kind of person not you know like wanting to be seen and known but then holding back you know like that kind of dance is was always there so i think that was part part and parcel of the whole becoming a psychologist thing is you know like like being important meant that people would look up to me in some way. And then at the same time, I don't have to do anything to be seen. I'm just doing what I do. I'm you know, being practicing for, for others. So you're kind of in the background, just being the listener. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Right. So you're not calling attention to yourself. Yeah. So it's a perfect, perfect career. Path. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Anyway, it's so, so interesting isn't it it's so it is interesting how we how we get this way yeah yeah wow all right so i think we're at our half call it half time uh mm -hmm. to use the sports metaphor right we need the cheerleaders out on the field and blah, blah, and the bands but anyway we're going to go into our commercials and then we'll be back to yes. hear about the book and what rebecca's dr rebecca is up to now so thank you Has social-emotional learning become just one more thing on your teacher's plates? Do teachers and students both find it boring and ineffective? Then bring Kikori to your school. Kikori transforms classrooms through experiential SEL activities that help students play, reflect, connect, and grow. Even better, students say it's more fun than recess. Schedule a no-obligation conversation at kikoriapp.com slash bringkikori. K-I-K-O-R-I. Those are my new bumpers. That's what they're called, bumpers. And anyway, Kokori, Kokori app. Um, it's my daughter's. My daughter works for them, and they are an amazing company that brings social emotional learning activities to children all ages. And uh, they are looking for schools to bring it in, like in the next couple weeks, um, so that they can keep going. Um, they are an amazing company, and they are all about 
making it available for free to everybody, but at the same time, they need to be a viable business. So if you know anyone in schools, anybody who could make the decision in the next couple of weeks, please, uh, you could email Haley, H-A-L-E-Y at kikoriapp.com. That's my daughter. Tell them where you found her. And uh, that would be amazing because it's really such an important company and I personally want to see it continue. So I don't know if I'm supposed to tell people that, but I said, you know what, there's nothing to lose, right? <laughs> Let's keep them in business, you know? Um, Cause it's really, you know, especially after COVID uh, you know, the kids weren't together. They, they got behind in social socializing and this app brings them together and communicating and emotion, you know, it's just, it's beautiful stuff. So anyway, I just couldn't, couldn't resist saying that, but we're back with Dr. Rebecca Ward, and we're going to hear what she's up to now with her book and everything. I can't wait to hear. So welcome back. Thank you. And I, <laughs> I'm i going to go check out Kikori. It's like, yes, perfect, and if, perfect that you had it here today. Yeah. Yeah. And if you know anyone in schools, I mean, really, it's time, you know, because of the... Per I mean, this is just my opinion. I don't know if it's right, but because of the way that purchasing happens in schools, it, it takes a long time and they've been going at this for a while and just need to get over the hump with the purchasing cycle in schools because it's so it's so valuable and it's so important for our kids. But anyway, mm -hmm. that'd be awesome. If you need more information, let me know. Mm -hmm. okay. okay, back to you, back to you. Okay, so, so we got you through the transformation. You saw how you were constructed and then what? What happened next? Well, I guess what I want to talk to talk about in the yeah. second part is, um, you know, they, uh, somewhere around 2007 or 8, like, well, in 2007, I started working at Brock University teaching in a program called Applied Disability Studies. And it was mostly teaching people how to be behavior analysts. That was the emphasis of the program. It was a master's program. And people who are... Um, uh, working in behavior analysis are called board certified behavior analysts. So it was a course sequence that would allow them to then take the exam and become a board certified behavior analyst. And that program was started by my husband, Maurice Feldman at Brock University. So, um, wow. yeah, so that we were, in was that, that the beginning? Was that the beginning of this behavior analysis movement? Like no, your husband no, no, started is, it or? This is more recent. This is 2006. Six that the program got started and I, okay. I joined um, the faculty in 2007 and I taught okay. for, I taught there for about nine years and um, and so so that whole like becoming a professor that was another great <laughs> great example <laughs> another notch on your belt right another thing yeah yeah no but at that time I knew yeah. At that time, I knew it was a notch, and it was just more like it was just such a great opportunity, and it was so wonderful to oh. with young adults, mostly young adults, who were wanting to work with kids with autism and disabilities and so on, and it was just really like a fabulous time teaching oh. there. And and in that process, we were Maurice and I were doing some research on early detection of autism, and that you know that was yeah. one of the areas of research, and I had some other students, but. One of the things that really got me interested was I saw a TED talk and I'm really struggling because I didn't write down the name of it. Her last name is Jane, Jane McGonigal. 
she was a social a sociologist game designer. And I think the TED Talk would have been somewhere around 2007. Um, and she um, she was designed, no, no, it would have been later, a little bit later. Anyway, she was talking about gamers and the gaming world and how, you know, looking at, she was taking like videotaping young people, mostly teenagers while they were watching videos or not watching, playing games on videos. And so she's videotaping their faces. And she was looking at the whole dynamics of being a gamer. And there's something at that time, a term that was called epic win. And it's wow. not fashion, but it was, it meant, you know, that moment, you know, that moment when you're Yes, just, where you're like, like yes, yes, yes like, like that. Yeah. That moment, you know, like, so she would wow. videotape them and then she'd take these, these epic win moments and she would, you know, like, frame them like you know like these these images of these faces that they're at an epic win moment in their life or in the game and the reason she was so interested in that was that it was like a parallel for our lives she was looking at the real lives of people not necessarily the ones that she was videotaping but the real lives of young people and how life wasn't like that for them life was not an epic win life was just like flatline a lot of anxiety a lot of worries about life and I think that could be said today too even though that's like about 10 years or more ago and and so she was like what if life could be an epic win every day like what if we could create our yeah life? wow and and just when she said that it, it hit me like you know the people I work with definitely do not have a sense of their life being epic you know, they're struggling in many, many ways, you know, and so I had done a little bit of work with teenagers, much more with young kids, but I started to look at how could I work with, with teenagers, and maybe even young adults at creating their lives. So it was, it was very much a connection between the course I had taken for my own personal growth and development, the landmark forum. And I was looking at a lot of the people I work with, you know, in terms of their cognitive challenges and their social challenges, may not be able to do the landmark form. Uh, but what could what could I do that could actually give them something similar that would help them really look at their life and really be able to take charge of what do they want their life to look like? And so with my master's students, I have a bunch of master's students that I engaged in this over uh, about a five-year period, that we work together to design and implement a program called My Life as an Epic Win. And it was just, it's probably the best time of my life, I would say. It was so delicious. And, you know, working with these young adults, ha having my students kind of helping the design of this course, it really was about having them understand like who they were, like really getting to see that they, they, they didn't have to be anything. They could just be themselves and be valued. And when they look at creating their lives, it's like, what do you love? What are you passionate about? How would, how could that be made into some kind of career path for you? Um, some of these people may have be at a level where maybe they'll never really work competitively in the job market, but, but they could contribute to the world in different ways. And how could they do that? And how to, you know, have, how to have them go on that journey of looking at, at their whole life. And so that's what the course was about. And it was a 12-week course. We delivered it seven times. And we were able to impact small groups of people in each of those 
um, courses. And we wanted to keep it small because it was very intimate kind of conversations about, about our lives. And, and it was also a course to teach them how to then go out and take the actions in the different areas of life, like, like in their relationships, like friendships, in their um, independence, like becoming more independent in their career, you know, like, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? A lot of them, I should say not a lot, they were 16 to 24. That was the kind of age group that we ended up working with. And um, at the, the work life and, and education, like further education beyond high school. So, so I have a couple questions. So was this through the, the university? Was this a separate thing? Was this with no, disabled kids was this with regular not to be regular but you know who was yeah, it, no, it, it sounds so i mean i the whole concept of the epic win that they're having it doing a video game and not in real life is like mind-blowing right that that's mm -hmm. i mean i've had some if I look at, you know, if I go back and look at my life when I did that triathlon and when I published the books and stuff, it's like, yes, you know, you do something that you don't think you can do, but not on a regular everyday basis. And a lot of it probably was because I had done landmark work and didn't and knew how to go through where I would normally stop, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. so the, the fact that you made that a program that's that's blowing my mind i mean what and what happened to that where is it now can we bring that back right now right now it's all just in here it's it's oh. in a it's in a book form and it's uh i'm finishing writing the book and oh, okay um at you know we finished i finished working uh at the university in sorry i can't remember the years now it's like 2016 Okay. Um, I finished my work at the university and so I did not deliver the course after that and I went off and did other things I I started a business and served children younger children with autism that went on for like uh, that was a six-year business up until the end of COVID so um so it's like during those six years I thought a lot about it but I didn't actually take any action so it's only been through COVID that I've been Kind of resurrecting that project and writing it as a book taking the essentially the manual that we use to deliver the course and putting it into book form so that it could be disseminated to a lot broader audience and it's being designed that young people themselves could read it there's actually going to be a section uh, like a, a separate little exercise book for the, the young adults to work with work through and it's meant for them to work it through with a parent or with somebody who cares about them, a, a teacher or another professional. And um, yeah, it's it's like, I can see how it's it, it'll be like a jumping board into adult life because you, you do, by the end of it, you'll come away with very clear goals and action plans in all the areas of life that matter to you. You know, so- That you know, is so cool. It is. It is very cool. It's like so needed. You know, kids get out of school. They don't know where to go or what to do. They don't look at what well, I mean. I have this purpose and passion exercise that I do with people and mm -hmm. they really get in touch with who they are and what's special about them and what they enjoy. Um, but so few people take me up on it, you know. And so if this is in a book form, I mean, I just think it's so important for us to get in touch with our greatness. Like that's part of this show is like 
we get to see your greatness and hopefully you get it too. all the things that you've done, shame or not. I mean, it's amazing. Right. Yeah. And yeah. for other people to get, you know, it, it's like, you know, if you, if you take what you were saying about anxiety, you know, people have anxiety and PTSD and all that stuff over here. Right. Boom. But over here is that part of us where we have certain special gifts in our heart that we were given. I don't know how we got the ones we got, but we did. And imagine being in touch with that over on this side. Wow. And creating life, that other stuff might go in the back because we don't have time to deal with it because we're creating this amazing life. You know, yeah, I think imagine. that's totally true that it's, it, it, it does take a back seat and it can, it can pop up once in a while. Yeah. Um, like, but you, you know, have something else to focus right? on. If yeah. that's all you got, yeah. you're not up to anything. It's yeah. all about my anxiety and my PTSD and what drugs are you on? I mean, I've heard these kids. Yeah. How many milligrams do you take of the blah, blah, blah? But it's like, because they don't have something that they're up to. I mean, that's just me going on my soapbox. But anyway, I, I oh, just love where you're totally going. True. And I think that inside of this course, that's what it, there is to look at. Like, what are you really committed to? And how do you stay in action despite the real and the imagined barriers? Because there are real barriers for young people with autism or any kind of challenge, I would say developmental challenges, you know? So it's like their well, parents. I think, yeah, and I think there's barriers to regular kids, you know, oh, yeah. not wanting to be uncool. My daughter didn't want to look weird. You know, like we all have our stuff, whether we're, developmentally challenged or not I think we all have our little incident where we made up a decision about ourselves and that's what gets us you know I don't want to speak up you know I feel like with that book launch last week I used everyone up so how can I do another one you know like like there's a certain allotment which is not true but that seems <laughs> to be true until I say it and then I realize oh I made that up yeah. But you know, we all have our stuff. Anyway, I'm I'm just so excited about this. So yeah. all right, so keep going. <laughs> I'll try try to stop <laughs> interrupting, but this is so cool. I love it. It's love good. it. It's okay, go ahead. <laughs> so yeah, so you know, where I am right now with it is I hired somebody to help me edit the book, mostly to have that partnership because you know, the noise in my head, like you we were just saying, and I think it's there isn't anybody any writer who probably doesn't have some of it is, you know, like, what do I actually have to say that anybody's actually going to listen to and why bother and look at, I've got all this other stuff I could be doing and should be doing and so on. So it's really just to try and keep myself on track and, and um, yeah, and I'm up and down about that. It's not like smooth, right? So it's yeah. like finding the time to write and to, and to get this book done. I'd say like it's halfway done it was like a, it was already a shell of it in the in terms of a manual so it was really just reworking it and I found as I'm writing I'm adding a lot more of myself to it which is an interesting process it's no longer this technical manual it's more mm -hmm. an expression of myself and being able to put in some stories about you know my life and stories of lives of people who I've worked with who you know are had, had mountains to climb and you know things to get around and and really just appreciating that the person who's reading this book is going to have going to be dealing with all of that themselves. And, and they've got somebody who's in their, in their court, you know, like their parent, their teacher, their healthcare professional, somebody is on their side, 
working with them to get, you know, to really create their life beyond the, the limitations that they might think are like a ceiling on their life. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. cool. And yeah. I, I think stories are so when I'm reading like a, I don't know, technical book, I, I, I gravitate to the stories because that that's just more entertaining to me than facts. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's great. The more stories you put in and you must have zillions from all your years. Zillions, but there's a lot of stories that have been really inspiring. Um, I'll share one story. I don't know what time we have. anyway. But yes, please. We got yeah. uh, six minutes. Yeah, we had, there was a young woman who was in the course. I would say she was probably 22 or so. And um she was like, if you met her, you would say, yes, this is a person with a disability. She had more obvious kinds of uh, differences about her. And yet she she was what, what we called selective mute, meaning she, she couldn't talk. Uh, she had language, but she couldn't use her language very functionally. And when she did talk, she whispered. And you could, you had to like, be like really, really close to to make out what she was saying. And so like during the course, someone sat beside her so that they could listen and then speak up for her. And through the course, a lot of things got revealed about her and how she, who she was and what she was interested in. One thing that was fascinating was that she collected jokes and she really wanted to be a comedian. And so that became a great motivator for her to talk. To speak, yeah. So by the end of the course, she was able to speak loud enough that everybody in the room could hear her, you know, and it was just a safe oh place, you know, for her. And people were so encouraging. The other participants were so great with her. So that was really wonderful. But another part of her story that I so loved was she came from a very traditional family where her mom never worked. Her mom stayed home, take care of the kids. And her mom had a hope chest, which I don't know if people all know what a hope chest is anymore, <laughs> but a hope chest was what was saved for the daughter when she got married. It would be blankets and other things that were saved away, right? And the mother had a hope chest for her daughter who had autism, but she had put it in the attic because it was never going to happen. And, and it makes me cry too. It's like her what came through this course was her mom's coming to terms with her daughter and her mom because there was a part like this, the young people were in one room and sometimes parents and young people together but there was time where I got to spend with parents and really just delve into their stories about their young people which was a great is a great part of the course and what the, what became clear was that this, this mom had no hopes she had given up hope a long time ago for her daughter and somewhere in the middle of the course the, the parents brought the hope chest back downstairs because the daughter had talked about that she too would like to get married someday and have children and um, it was not something the parents could even fathom but they were willing through the through this course to even look at that that she had a dream that she could have a wow. life just like her parents had had and uh and so that was like you know it may not be the dream of maybe a lot of modern day girls but yeah. it was it was her dream and 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 it was very moving to see that they took that step and they really were listening and that was a big part of the course is also about listening like learning how to really listen so other people can speak there's a book written like that for teens you know yeah. listen so your children can speak and speak so your children can listen but this was true mm -hmm. in this course it was like 
you know, being able to be a listening for what were her real dreams and how can I support her in having those dreams fulfilled? And, uh, you know, and it's just like the world kind of opened up. There was a sense of the world opening up for her in the course. And there's, you know, lots of other stories like that. Wow. So, but, you know, as you, you know, it's so true, even you know, what we do to our kids, trying to make them into something that they're not and not having that listening, whether they're disabled or not. I mean, I think the lesson is so profound, you know, for, for all of us to listen to our kids as their greatness, not as their, uh, I don't know, would you say weaknesses or, you know, where we're not strong but yeah. to listen where we are, you know, that I think that's such a great lesson for all of us. Yeah. yeah. So. Whoa, that really got to my heart. Wow. That yeah, hope chest. Oh. It's like a, it's, it's a story that I'm telling in the book, one of the stories that I'm telling. And it's to me, one of the most yeah. things. And I think that's what I want for all young people. Right. And, and yeah. it's, it's way beyond autism or developmental disability. Yes. Yeah. It really is in, in the world we live in. Um, it's not a very easy path. Yeah. It's not yeah. An easy path, so. Wow. I appreciate well, not being able to talk about it with you here. This is great. Oh, it's so wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for the work you're doing. I wish we could go on forever. Ah, so, okay. So I'm sorry we have to cut this short. Well, but, but anyway, if you want to talk more to Dr. Rebecca, um, you could reach her at drrebeccaward14 at gmail.com. That's D-R-R-E-B-E-C-C-A, Ward, W-A-R-D, number 14 at gmail.com. And, um, who knows? Who knows what will happen? But uh, yeah, I want to know more. I want to have you back when your book is out and uh, be able to talk more about it. Thank you so much. A anything else you want to say in, in closing? No, I just appreciate having this opportunity to talk about it. It's, it's like when I speak it, it becomes more alive for me and gets me more motivated to get the thing done. <laughs> so. Good. All right. Well, anything I can do to support you, let me know, please, because yeah. I think it's a book that needs to be written. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rebecca Ward. Woo!